1995 it is uh, sixteen point two. And if you take it over in class two, in nineteen fifty three, it was one point three percent. As the hierarchy increased, the number of representation was. The percentage of representation was very less. In class 2, 1.3, and if you take into account 1995, it has increased to 12.7. And uh, class 1, 1953, the representation was 0.4%. And this is basically relating to the central services, government In 1995, it has increased to 10.2 percent. And on an average, if you take into account. Uh, in the after independence uh, till now, basically during 90s, in general, if you take into account, the total percentage uh, increased to 7% of the central government employees. And if you take into account, the women representation, you know, women representation, you know, that was very marginal in the post independence period, especially if you take into account the All India services. In All India services, towards the 1990s, it has uh, just gone beyond 10%. That is the and uh, more recent data is not available. You know, very recent data relating to this representation of that is not available. But in general, if you take into account okay, the bureaucracy, we can simply say because see, as far as the Indian bureaucracy is concerned. Its representative character is sought to be increased on the basis of caste. Those get to try the, the relation is there, but majorly the representational character is sought to be increased on the basis of caste. Uh, and gender-based policies are there for representation. Gender-based Representational policies are there in some context or not? Yes, that are yes, that are there. But it's not actually uh, if you take into account that the central government or central services uh, in general these policies are not there. So majorly it's a caste-based no, reservation policies are there. Now see one major aspect that we need to take into account. 
Because the theory that we discussed, it maintained that representative bureaucracy seems to be more conducive to democracy. Why? What are the basic premise? The premise is, in a democracy, the, the democratic governance requires policy formulation beside policy implementation, monitoring and evaluation. So as far as the policy formulation and other policy processes are concerned, unless the different demographic or different population is represented, the beliefs and values of diverse category is missed. As a result of which, the public policies are not appropriate. They become inappropriate, they become inadequate. At the same time, they also become irresponsible. So in order to make it more responsive, adequate, appropriate, so thereby for the success of the administration it was expected that it should be more representative. Now one, one major question that has been investigated by some of these theorists including as I referred Rudolf and Rudolf. And also F. D. Zwart, the study in fact has been taken up by Robson. And instead of F, is make it pH. Uh, 
ability of the Indian bureaucracy towards the 80s, 90s or the 21st century should be much more as far as the various policy process is concerned as compared to in the post-independence period. Isn't it? Because theoretically what the theorists are saying, moment the bureaucracy becomes more representative, its ability to make policy more appropriate to the citizen, diverse categories of the people increases. Because representation is there. So everybody is new, everybody is valuable, everybody is ideas, find a place. Now, by taking into the statistics, the representation of character of the Indian bureaucracy certainly has increased. So theoretically, that means the ability of the Indian bureaucracy to play the role in the policy process from a democratic point of view has significantly increased. But do you agree? Do you agree with this? Because the moment you talk about that bureaucracy and this policy making role as far as the democracy is concerned, that means the policies are formulated in a manner that addresses to what? Every community. Implemented in a manner that addresses to every community. So that means the rights of the scheduled caste, scheduled tribe, other backward class, the various vulnerable sections of the society, their rights, their expectations, their future is adequately taken care of whether through a policy that is formulated or it is implemented. Do you agree on this? That significantly that is improvement on this account. But then only we can say that it is more conducive to what? Democracy. If it is only addressing to a small section of people, it's something not democracy, it's elitism, it's oligarchy. So do you think with this, because statistics says the representational character has increased. Theoretically, its compatibility with Indian democracy has increased, its democratic role has increased. But do you think so? See, studies indicate in proportion to the increase in the representational character of Indian bureaucracy, India's bureaucracies, Indian bureaucracy's role in democratic governance has not substantially increased. Not. It has not substantially increased. In a similar proportion, it has not contributed towards Indian democracy or Indian democratic administration. That means its ability to address to the needs, expectations, values of various categories have not improved. Why do you think it has not improved? The studies indicate at a higher level the increase has been more. Because not only reservation on job, there is also element of thing in promotion. So that means the participation of the lower sector uh, socially 
the categories of people who have been neglected has significantly increased. But this increase may not be actually the, 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 the ideal representation. Less than that. But with this increase, what should have also increased? The ability of the Indian bureaucracy to perform its democratic role and responsibilities. But studies indicate it has not. That means the policy that is formulated still remains biased, still remains inadequate. Implementation still simply, or what you can simply say, neglects the needs, requirements of people who are vulnerable. Why so? This is in fact, yes, you want to say something? Sir, there might be two reasons for that. One is the politicization of bureaucracy. Second, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the after reaching the higher levels, they tend to identify themselves not belonging to the caste which they belong, but to the class. So their interest start converging with the interest of others. Very good. In fact, see, the studies indicate the failure of the representational role of the Indian bureaucracy is linked to its imbalanced character. So why is not being able to play the role as a representative bureaucracy which is linked to another phenomena that we have also been discussing that in Indian context the Indian bureaucracy is not balanced. Because if you take it from Indian bureaucracy, Indian bureaucracy in the post-independence period was considered to be a balanced bureaucracy. So in the post-independence period the Indian bureaucracy was considered to be a balanced bureaucracy. That is, it maintained its neutrality. And advised the ministers. And implemented without any political, let's say, association. But if you take into account the post Nehruvian period, especially if you take into account late 1960s or early 1970s and onwards, late 1960s or early 1970s and onwards, there has been politicization of Indian bureaucracy or political patronization of Indian bureaucracy. from this period onwards there has been political patronization there has been politicization so Indian bureaucracy lost autonomy vis-a-vis politically executive from the early 1970s so if you take into account the early 1970s onwards the bureaucracy has been intentionally subordinated 
and in case of resistance it has been victimized so it has been politically subordinated there has been subordination there has been political subordination and in case of resistance it has there has been victimization through transfers postings disciplinary actions vigilance cases and see this has been highlighted by number of uh, committees and commissions right from the sah commission inquiry on emergency excesses the first administrative reform commission also referred to it the first administrative reform commission sah commission inquiry report and also recently the second administrative reform commission So here, basically, we are referring that uh, uh, the, 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 the Indian bureaucracy that has been political subordination, and in case of resistance, that has been victimization. That means, at the same time, it is being indicated that means there has been no institutional arrangement in order to protect the autonomy of Indian bureaucracy. There is no institutional arrangement. people 
in those categories who are comparatively well off. So let's say an X caste. Within that X caste, who is able to take benefit? The one who is comparatively well off within that caste. So it is being referred that say even these benefits are accruing to only isolated categories of people within these vulnerable sections of people. That means the benefit of this representational or redistributive justice is not well spread out. It is concentrated on. As a result of it, it has given rise to a feeling for feeling of class for itself. Class for itself means the basically they're eliminated. They're actually separated from that particular group. As a result of which, no more they are able to identify themselves with that particular group or they are no more able to carry the same values. So as a result of which, their, their participation does not also translate into, let's say, the policies. So these are the two major reasons. One, the Indian bureaucracy and its limited strength or ability to influence public policy. So even if representational character is increasing, its representational role is not increasing. The second aspect is the benefit reaching to an isolated category within that particular community and these isolated categories since therefore most, most of them, the, the, you know, the more mobile, more uh, the advanced section of that particular category. So these category of people who ultimately are benefited, they do not share the same, same values, same ideas of that particular category. As a result of which, their contribution, you know, see, if the men for what? They will be able to have the same empathetic values, ideas. So they do not carry those empathetic values and ideas. As a result of which, that is not contributed or translated into policies. This is the reason why, <coughs> even if the representational character is increasing, but its democratic contribution is not proportionate. The second aspect that we refer balanced. The same aspect already we have referred. That's in the post-independence period. Indian bureaucracy has become more and more imbalanced. And here you can simply the explanation just now I gave that from 1970s onwards, early 70s or late 60s onwards. The Indian bureaucracy gradually has become imbalanced. Basically, being subservient to political executive. A small reference that we make here. Actually, if you take into account in the post-independence period, there were developmental goals, did we achieve those developmental targets or planned targets? We did not. 
and by the 1960s, the national euphoria has died down. It was already two decades, so the, the immediate the euphoria of independence and all this thing has died down. Repeated failure of the not with the five-year plans, annual plans, and all this thing that has also lowered the hope of the people. And uh, this is the period when there was a lot of question, question mark on the capacity of the state and the, the, the political establishment to bring about the desired change and development. So in this backdrop, the blame was very swiftly and more very conveniently passed over to bureaucracy. Now what are the premise on which this blame was actually passed over to bureaucracy? Why bureaucracy was blamed? What was the justification? So during this period, some of the major political personalities, like let's say, if you take into account Muradi Desai or even Indira Gandhi, in fact they emphasized that India is a developing country. It requires changes. Change requires commitment by the bureaucracy towards those values or goals. But the bureaucracy that is rule bound in the name of neutrality, with that idea of neutrality, so bureaucracy which is rule bound is incapable of bringing about change or development. So what is the primary explanation, what is the major explanation that was put forward, why did we fail? We fail because bureaucracy is the vehicle which has to bring about development, but the type of bureaucracy we have is not capable of bringing about development. Why? Because the type of bureaucracy we have, it is a rule-bound bureaucracy. So rule-bound bureaucracy can only ensure stability, cannot bring about change or dynamism. So development requires change and dynamism, progress. For that, which type of bureaucracy would, require, would be required? A bureaucracy which is committed to those developmental goals. So they should not be committed to law. They should not be committed to rules and regulations. They should be committed to the goal. Thus came up the slogan of committed bureaucracy. So in the Indian context, during this uh, late 60s and early 70s, there was uh, emphasis on the need for committed bureaucracy. A bureaucracy that has to be committed towards developmental goals rather than the laws, rules and regulations. In actual practice, the bureaucracy was meant to 
be committed towards the party in power and the political executive in power so in the name of commitment the commitment was actually emphasized in favor of what the party in power and the political executive in power and the resistance to this was actually meted out through punishment so the, the resistance to this type of uh, emphasis was responded through punishment so that's what the first administrative reform commission has written or it has highlighted the Indian bureaucracy showed resistance but it was a weak resistance the Indian bureaucracy did resist you know we are by constitution by law we are required to be neutral but again this resistance was a weak resistance so the bureaucracy failed in line because the distributed bureaucrats are not dealt with the, the punishments like it's a transfer to move you know, to, okay, you know, to transfer on you know, to, uh, 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 posting or in fact vigilance cases or other instruments of harassment that is what first administrative reform commission has also maintained when bureaucracy was asked to bend bureaucracy soon started crawling see this very statement is highlighting which character of Indian bureaucracy patronization politicization loss of its autonomy vis-a-vis political executive and see this patronization continued this politicization continued Now this patronization continued, this politicization continued. And see, it is evident here simply we can say that in, the in case of change of government, mass transfers take place with regard to especially which positions? Key positions, key bureaucratic positions. Mass transfers take place. Whether at the union level or at the state level. This is indicative of what? Politicization. And in this particular context, there is also, as far as the Indian judiciary is concerned, that the famous case, case relating to UP, that gave rise to, in Indian context, the Cook theory of Indian administration. Cook, C O A, Cook theory of Indian administration. And here, you can refer to some of the examples very recently, with all the keep having that how in the appointment of very key positions, often the opposition and government is coming in, you know, coming face to face, whether related to CBI or other institutions, many, many key positions in recent period we have some instances or not, 
examples or not? So you can refer to that, not indicating which is right or who is wrong, that how appointment of weak, very key positions that is otherwise should have been dealt with neutrality has become a, a, a stage for intense political battle. So don't talk about who is right or which is wrong. Simply highlight the fact that how yes, you know, not not because see, as far as the higher bureaucracy is concerned, that's that's as such is being tampered with through politicization, but including some very key positions, certain constitutional and statutory statutory positions. With regard to that, that uh, that that is also been subject to intense political battle. No allegations, counter allegations, allegations of favoritism, you know, all these things. This, in fact, is highlighting what? The, the extent of politicization. So, this basically indicates of which character of Indian bureaucracy? Balanced or imbalanced? Imbalanced. Not only this, here you can also highlight. That one of the judgment of the Supreme Court. A Supreme Court, never a couple of years before, very recently, it has highlighted that bureaucracy lacks autonomy. And following from the recommendation of the Second Administrative Reform Commission. Observed that there should be civil service boards at the union and state level, autonomous civil service boards at the union and state level to deal with transfer, promotion, and posting of civil servants. The Second Administrative Reform Commission has already recommended this and referring to the second recommendation of Second Administrative Reform Commission, the Supreme Court maintained, it observed, that uh, the civil service lacks an autonomy and this autonomy should be given and uh, it, it, it should be given by setting up of the Autonomous Central Civil Service Board and uh, State Civil Service Boards. At the union level already a Central Civil Service Board is there but again each autonomy, the autonomy of the Central Civil Service Board itself is under question. So not merely setting up, it observed that the, the Civil Service Board should be autonomous and all the important transfer promotion postings should be dealt by who? The Civil Service Board. So that bureaucracy remains autonomous, balanced. So on this account, we can say that bureaucracy doesn't score high. Now if we talk about participating. So Indian bureaucracy is very participative or not? See, post-independence Indian bureaucracy carried the British character of being elitist and exclusive. 
the most independent Indian bureaucracy carried a British character, the British character of being elitist. Elite, elitist, and exclusivist. But say, if you take into account the, the post-development period from 60s onwards, there has been regular emphasis, emphasis on making Indian administration more and more open, democratic and participative. So that means there has been a continuous emphasis to increase the democratic and participatory character of Indian bureaucracy from 60s onwards. Though the, the democratization and people's participation in Indian bureaucracy in 1990s, until 19, uh, early 1980s, remained marginal. So till that 1980 has remained marginal and whatever participation that has been basically through what you can say NGOs or non-state institutions or civil society organizations or Panchayatilaj institutions during 60s. So whatever participation that a participating character has been that has been moreover uh, in the form of the Panchayatiraj institution during 1960s or for that matter, let's say, the, the civil society organizations in the form of NGOs and voluntary organizations. But majorly, the Indian bureaucracy remained non-participative, centralized, very hierarchic. But from 90s onwards, there has been significant transformation. In a substantial or significant transformation. From so 90s onwards, there have been certain significant changes has taken place, and this possibly, all of you can actually say, what important changes from 1990s onwards that has taken place because of which, on this account, we can say that the the Indian administration or Indian bureaucracy, to the extent democratization is concerned and participation is concerned, that has in, in increased significantly increased. What is that? Social audit, social audit. Social audit. What is that? Social audit. Social audit. Anything else? Change from government to governance. That's a theoretical basis. What is the concrete Indian aspect? E-governance. E-governance. Okay. Or? Seventy third and seventy fourth amendment act. Major basic change in youth are also. Bade bade change in the covered the vote. Dhan jamin pe nahi rehta. So if we take it account the nineties onwards, there have been some major changes, major initiatives. Like let's say seventy third and seventy fourth amendment act. Panchayatiraj institutional and municipal bodies. Apart from this, 
So if you take into account during this period, as he rightly referred, governance seemed to be approached. So there has been more and more emphasis on participation of not only private sector but also civil society organizations. So NGOs, voluntary organizations, community-based organizations, neighborhood organizations, pressure groups, interest groups, or let's say various other groups like let's say the, the, the forest management groups. Apart from this, certain other major initiatives like let's say the Right to Information Act. The right based initiative has been taken, Right to Information Act, along with citizen charter initiatives. And in more than 20 states, Right to Public Services Act. Do you know what is this Right to Public Services Act? In accountability, we right? right to Public Services Act. And provisions for social audit. Introduction of e governance, m governance. So these are some of the initiatives that is indicative towards which aspect of the Indian bureaucracy? More openness, more participation, more democratization and more participation so on. See, if you take into account Indian bureaucracy in the post-independence period, it has gradually become more representative and gradually has become more and more participative. But what has been one of the major characters that actually has been on the negative side? It has been imbalanced. So being imbalanced, the Indian bureaucracy has not been able to utilize its potential of becoming more and more representative. And as such, it has remained subordinated to the political executive, it has remained subservient. As that has actually inhibited the Indian bureaucracy to enable it to play its legitimate role. But having said so, its increasing participative role. It becoming more open, more transparent, more participative has increased the bureaucracy, has made Indian bureaucracy to become more and more responsive, more and more answerable. Now with this, what could be our concluding line? It has become more conducive to bureaucracy or contradictory? We cannot, we cannot conclude.
conclude, we can conclude zip line, we cannot say it is contradictory to Indian democracy or at the same time we cannot also say it is conducive to Indian democracy. Or it, 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 it has, it, 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 we cannot actually conclude with any extreme and let's say conclusion that there are number of what you can say significant developments that has increased the Indian bureaucracy and its ability to protect and advance Indian bureaucracy, Indian democracy. What is the ability to protect and advance Indian democracy? Its ability that you know, to conduct elections, you know, regular elections, peaceful transfer of power, at the same time, its ability, in fact, in some account to accommodate multiple views, multiple ideas, but at the same time, it is having certain deficiency, major deficiencies, its subordination to political, you know, political executive, and at the same time, its inability to accommodate multiple voices into public policies. Along with this, its inability to deter violence, especially against vulnerable, whether scheduled tribe, scheduled caste, other backward classes, or more particularly women and children. So this is indicative of what? Its restrictive role as far as democracy is concerned. So it's inability to stand up against political executive, represent multiple views into the public policies or policy processes, and its inability to counter violence against a vulnerable section of people or protect the rights of the vulnerable section of the people. Or its inability to contain fringe elements. Fringe elements basically would refer to what? Violent groups, extremist groups. All of you understood the relation between Indian bureaucracy and democracy. Only thing you have to support it through the initial argument that I gave, you have to support it through few data that you have to take out. Okay. And the same you have to also explain with regard to development. But slightly one aspect you have to add as far as the developmental aspect is concerned. What is that? Let's see. Uh, because the same idea, it, 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 its ability to uh, become more and more development, development is also somewhat being restricted because of it being subordinated to political executive because it has to accommodate multiple views. Its ability to take up policies as required is stunted. But one aspect you should mention as far as the developmental aspect is concerned. Its ability, that very extraordinary ability to, uh, to adapt the new economic policies has been remarkable. Sit from that very socialist approach towards a capitalist approach has been remarkable.
See, as per the explanation is concerned, for both this it will be equal. Only difference that you have to maintain is the initial explanation. In this, the initial explanation will be what? You will be highlighting what we have achieved in the post-independence period in industrialization, in agriculture, in let's say educated manpower, in terms of you know, reducing poverty or not reducing poverty or let's say life expectancy, mortality rate. These things you have to highlight as far as development is concerned. And at the same time, these failures, you know, very significant data relating to poverty, literacy, all this or inaccessibility, inaccessibility, number of these things as far as the failure in development is concerned. So this aspect, initial aspect relating to democracy and development will be slightly different. The rest, the explanation will be Bandra's same. Okay? Sure, let's move to other chapter before I move. Anyone would like to ask any question? Write down a question. Mm-hmm. 
put three drops in this. What does this mean? अरे लाइन्स होता है डिक्शनरी के डॉट्स आते हैं ना हम लोग लिखते समय डॉट्स डाल देते हैं पांच छह साल put only three dots that means there are few other lines also might be there so only you are putting relevant lines continuation ठीक है three dots Indian bureaucracy trying to exemplify interest it's it's worst worst fear it's worst fear of being non-developmental comma if not anti-developmental comment Yes, but इतना time काफी है यार परफेक्ट बताने के लिए और तो तुम लोगों दिमाग में फसल बुद्धि भी हो गया है बोलो सामने वाले बोलो Is, is the question is the answer is going to be exactly the same or the slight change in the theme is there? Public interest. 
if you take it around this particular question, it is similar to the previous question, but exactly few things needs to be added here. It's saying that the Indian bureaucracy trying in exemplifying what is exemplifying discipline. What bureaucracy is Weber exemplifying Weberian idea of institutionalization. Institutionalization of bureaucratic interest. What is institutionalization of bureaucratic interest? That is not using its power for maximizing public interest. Because as Weber says, bureaucracy carries the essence of the state. So what is the state? State is instrumental. State is only a means to achieve the goal of goal of the goal. It merely means so also thereby the bureaucracy being the part of the state, it is also a means, not a goal in itself. So that is why the bureaucracy in exercise of its power is expected to maximize whose goal? State goal, society's goal, public interest, common good. But Weber says that's a possibility. It is the most efficient form. But at the same time, it can also very efficiently do something wrong. It can also efficiently misuse its power. It can efficiently misuse its power to protect its own interest and Western interest, bureaucratic interest, dot dot dot, in its worst. If not anti-developmental, no worst fear. It Weber did also had a fear that this type of administrative system, which is a very efficient system. It might, instead of being developmental, it might be anti-developmental, it might be non-developmental, or it's simply saying this dot dot dot. The rest of the portion is basically referring to an Indian context. In Indian context, it, it has been non-developmental, if not anti-developmental. What is anti-developmental? Like let's say, there have been a number of uh, systems around the world. If you take into account the Afghanistan under Taliban, the entire administrative system worked towards what? Maintaining the stability or in fact uh, uh, something negative change. That's a negative change. If you take into account number of other regions, there have been number of states in the history, in the contemporary period, some of the, even if you take into account some of the states in Africa even today, Somalia and number of uh, such states. So there, if you take into account the, the, the administrative system that has been there in some period of time, or in the new course, they have been anti-developmental. But here, here simply we are referring that because of these characters, bureaucracy in the Weberian sense that is there, ultimately what it does, it's not capable of development. And if not anti-developmental, it will not bring about developmental. It might remain non-developmental, simply satisfying its own goal, maintaining stability, but not bringing about significant changes. Okay? So that's why you read the statements automatically, you will get to understand. Chale. Let's move, move ahead. And let us take into account another chapter, the very last chapter in paper 2, Issues in Indian Administration. See, under this chapter, few issues we will try to understand. The first one, let's take into account a comparatively simpler one. 
that is uh, administration in the era of coalition. See, earlier I have uh, already referred that uh, in Indian context in the post-independence period when the coalitions came up. Because in the post-independence period, Indian political system was alien to coalition politics. It did not witness a coalition politics. In fact, in the post-independence period, there was one party dominant system as Granville Austin as Granville Austin would refer that in post-independence period India witnessed one party dominant system the same had been referred by Rajini Kothari as the Congress system Austin referred it as one party dominant system and the same has been referred by Rajni Kutheri referred the same as Congress system. See, for the first time, the coalition politics in Indian context was visible at the state level in 19. What is the year? 67. 67. That's a significant year. That year is referred to as a dividing line in Indian, in Indian politics. In Indian politics. 1967 has been referred by Yogendra Yadav as the first democratic upsurge. Yeah, that 1967 has been referred by Yogendra Yadav as the first democratic upsurge. But see, if you take into account these coalitions, where more than half of the state government became non-Congress school government, they are comparatively instable. That means in those areas, soon the Congress party came to power. So again, there was a case of one party dominant system, whether at the union or the state level. The second instance of coalition politics was in 1977. What was significant in 1977? Yeah. 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 Say in 1977, again at the state level, coalition governments came out. State level. Because at the union level, it was not a coalition government. 
technically it was one party, Janata party, though many parties kept together, but they formed one. So technically one party government. So the coalition government came up at which level? State level again in 1977 and these coalitions were comparatively stable. But see, at the union level, the coalition politics came up in 1989. So if we take into account, at the union level, the coalition you know, politics came up in 1989. And it continued thereafter. Now, though, though there has been also governments with majority, the very current government had the majority. But again, even if the single party had the majority, it would be referred to as what? A coalition government. Even if, let's say, the PV Narasimha Rao government from a minority became a majority government, it managed, and again, there have been also UPA 1, UPA 2, which managed 5 year term, NDA 1, managed, managed no, under Arthur Bajpayee managed 5 year term. So, all this, irrespective, because see, irrespective of full term, all these governments would be referred to as coalition government, including the current government, even if a single party had the more than the majority mark. So, the coalition politics. In fact, continued from 1989 onwards at the union level, but significantly, though the coalition politics started at the state level, but at the state level, how many states do you find uh, coalitions are there in power? Hmm? Do you find much of many states? Or in most of the states, you will find single party in power? Very occasionally, in some states, some coalition might be there, but states, most of the states are ruled by single party. So effectively, the coalition politics started from the state, traveled to the union level, but at the union level, the coalition politics has become a reality, but at the state level, it is no more coalition, single party. Now see, when you refer to coalition era, the coalition era has effectively become the coalition at which level? Union level. Now, in this backdrop, in the backdrop of coalition at the union level, let us try to understand the impact on government and administration. Now, what is its impact on government and administration? See, first of all, if you take into account Indian government and administration, Indian administration is based on, or simply we can say it is a parliamentary democracy. Indian administration is basically founded on the principle of parliamentary democracy or system of parliamentary democracy. The parliamentary democracy operates on the principle of 
collective responsibility on the behalf of council of ministers. So there is something called ministerial responsibility and there is something called collective responsibility. What does this mean? And what is the difference between these two? What is the ministerial responsibility and what is the collective responsibility? Hmm? But everyone should have a same viewpoint. Okay. And what is the that is the ministerial responsibility or collective responsibility? Collective. What is ministerial responsibility? The minister is responsible for the department and minister is responsible for the department or the ministry. Okay. And there is the doctrine of pressure. Minister can? Minister can be removed from the office by applying the doctrine of pressure. Doctrine of? Pressure by the president. Pressure? Pleasure. Achha, pleasure. Okay. Doctrine of pleasure. Okay. See, uh, ministerial responsibility basically uh, means the minister is responsible to the president, being the chief executive. So there lies the what you say, doctrine of pleasure. But effectively it is exercised by who? The prime minister. Collective responsibility means the entire council of ministers it swims and sinks together. That means within the council of ministers, while the decision being taken, they can have difference of opinion. But once a decision has been taken, that decision is the decision of the entire council of ministers. So they cannot publicly differ. So decision once taken, each one of them stand by the decision. That decision belongs to each and every one of the council. Now see, we are referring that the Indian parliamentary democracy is based on the principle of collective responsibility. But see, in the era of coalition, in the coalition era, this seems, have, seems to have weakened. Do you find number of instances where the ministers being the part of the council of minister they disagree with the decision of the council there have been number of instances there have been number of instances when the, the, the ministers especially belonging to coalition parties they differ in their views with regard to the decision taken by the the council. So here one thing that is actually we are referring in the era of the coalition the principle of collective responsibility seems to have suffered. And see if you take into account this uh, ministerial responsibility, collective responsibility and another important aspect is involved. What is that? See if you take into account who is responsible for the appointment and the removal of these members of the Council of Ministers? Theoretically, it is President. Actually, it is Prime Minister. But see, in the Iraq coalition, the ability of the Prime Minister, 
the choice, the, the, the freedom of the Prime Minister in defining the composition of the Council of Ministers has weakened. This is one major, you know, we can say in the Iraq coalition, one of the one of the impact has been that the ability of the Prime Minister to exercise choice with regard to the selection of members of the Council of Ministers and whether in terms of its inclusion or exclusion has weakened. And in this, the important role is being played by the president of the, the parties being coalition partners or the, the supremo of various coalition in the parties. And at the same time, the principle of collective responsibility seems to have suffered. The next impact is, see in the coalition era, there has been increasing federalization. That means Indian polity has become more and more federal. So Indian polity and administration has become more and more federal. That means the autonomy of the state governments, the autonomy, the capability of the state governments, vis-a-vis the union government has significantly increased. <coughs> but the relationship between the union and state continues to be governed across three lines that emerged post-1967. So here we are referring, one, there has been federalization. And because of this federalization, the state governments and their autonomy has increased. The state governments, you know, the, 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 the ability to stand up vis-a-vis -vis the union government has significantly increased. But the relation between the union and state continues to be governed across three lines that moreover developed post-1967. Let me explain this, what are these three lines. See, prior to 1967, what was the case? At the union level and as well as the state level, same party in power. So when same party in power, the relationship between the union and the state used to be smooth. And moreover, whatever issue used to be there, whatever issue that used to be there with the state vis-a-vis -vis union, it used you know, the, 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 the channel that used to be used was not official channel. Governor was not used. Or official channel was not used. Which channel was used? Party. So party structure used to be the channel of communication, channel of negotiation, channel of resolving conflict between the union and the state. That is why it has been referred prior to 1967. The governors, they played only ceremonial role. 
you know, there is famous statements, they did nothing other than cutting ribbons and distributing prizes. Because at that time, the various chief ministers, they used to be politically much towering to those who are actually appointed as governors. And they were more close to the prime minister and other leaders at the union level. So the governor as an institution was not used, or other official institutions were not used. The political party and its structure used to be used in terms of defining the relation between the union and the state. But from 1967 onwards, what happened? Many non-Congress government came up. So moment non-Congress government came up, that in the traditional structure that used to be used in dealing with the state, state governments became what? No, but not to you. No more it is useful in dealing with all the states. So that is why three different type of relations that came up. One, where the same political party in union and state relation is harmonious. Congress at Union, Congress at State. The relationship is harmonious. But let's say at the Union level, a political party, at the state level, there are political parties, they may not be the same political party, but ideologically they are mutually agreeable. Ideologically, interest-wise, they are mutually agreeable. Mutual, no, they are somewhat mutually agreeable, they are closer to each other. So, there, the relationship that emerged was congenial. The cordial relation, congenial relation. Congenial. Harmonious, congenial. And the third is, the political parties who were out and out opposed to each other, in that particular context, what came up? Hostile. Hostile relationship. So what is one of the major impact in the post-1989 onwards, the coalition? Okay, there is increased federalization. State government developed, increased in their autonomy. Their ability to in fact deal with the union government increased significantly. Because of the coalition politics. With coalition politics significantly weakened the union government. But at the same time, the relationship between the union and the state continued to be defined across three lines or three major ways that basically developed post-1967. So Union government also continued to enjoy harmonious or congenial, congenial relation with many state governments where either the same political party in power or political parties are powerful, those are friendly. But there are many state governments where the political parties in power were opposed to each other. So the relationship that emerged is hostile. But see, during this period, as far as the union and state is concerned, the, during the coalition period or 90s onwards, more competitive and bargaining nature was visible. No more competitive and bargaining nature was visible. 
So Indian administration, as far as the union versus state is concerned, it became more, more and more competitive, more and more bargaining. Now here few things let's take into account. You see, if you take into account union government, union government because being coalition, it has become comparatively unstable. So the, the government is dependent on number of political parties and most of these political parties they have their identity where in the various states. They are basically either regional political parties or even if national political parties, their identity is basically identity and interest is linked to particular states. So that means the, the political parties on which the union government depended, they had an inherent interest in strengthening federalism. So they have their inbuilt interest, automatic interest in strengthening federalism. So the post-coalition, because of this character, automatically the federal character of Indian administration increased and the ability of the state government increased and the state governments, they in fact definitely increased in terms of their bargaining power. So by taking advantage of this political negotiation, various state government, they in fact took advantage or they negotiated or bargained for more financial resources, for setting up of industries. favorable policy packages
Next. See, uh, prior to the Iraq coalition, the Article 356 has been misused. The most misused article of the Indian Constitution. Article 356, all of you know? What is that? That's a president's rule. That is popularly referred to as governor's rule. State emergency. Yeah, that's And see, so that has been most widely and extensively misused. Possibly we can say uh, some of the instances where it was blatantly misused, though it started much earlier. In the 1950s itself, in the Kerala case. But some of the glaring misuse has been during the 70s. If you take into account, even 1977, when the Party came to power, half of the state government were dismissed to the Congress rule on the premise that there was a actually lost popular, what to say, support. And when Congress Party came back in 1980, almost equal number of state governments were dismissed on the same premise. So there are governments which were dismissed on the basis of law and order, corruption. But the, the article precisely says what? The state government can be dismissed only on the basis of if it is not being able to be managed anymore on the line of the constitution. The constitution has broken down, the constitutional machinery has broken down. That is the only premise. See, though the 1994 SR Bhumai case put a stop to the misuse of Article 356. But political observers say the court's judgment has to be seen in the backdrop of increasing federalization of Indian polity. Because the court is also an institution, human institution. It also responds to what? This is changing dynamics. So the political observers maintain that the court's judgment in the SR Bombay case, SR Bombay, B O M M A I Bombay case, that finally put a full stop to the misuse of Article 356, needs to be seen in the backdrop of coalition politics. Weakening of the state union government. Not only this, because see, the court judgment provided any imposition of Article 356 is to be subject to what? A legislative process. What is that legislative process? The Lok Sabha and Rajya Sabha separately has to approve the resolution of dismissal of that state within how many months? Within two months. Now see, in the era of coalition, do you think the, the same political party or a group of political party that enjoys the majority in Lok Sabha is also enjoying the majority in the Rajya Sabha? No. That means the federal role of Rajya Sabha increased post-coalition. Rajya Sabha is a, is a chamber representing whom? States. It represents a federal character. 
So the federal role or the at the strength of the Rajya Sabha has significantly increased post 1969 in the era of coalition, especially. So that is why. So there have been some few misadventures. If you take into account the dismissal, look at the recommendation for the dismissal of the UP and Bihar government during 1990s was turned down by the then president. And subsequently, there have been certain initiative, and that was not taken up because the government did not re-send it to the president. Why? It did not have the majority in the Rajya Sabha. Simply highlighting that was a initiative during 1998. The India government, the first India government, and the then president was who? Kiran. So it did not, no, because it did not resend it. Because the moment the proposal would have been resent, the president was bound to sign it. But did not do that because it did not have the required strength in Rajya Sabha. Basically, simply we can say that see, the federal structure has strengthened and the misuse of Article 356 has stopped. One of the major reasons being federalization in the era of coalition. Now, one more aspect, one more important aspect, impact on holiday services. What is the impact on holiday services? Training of the all India services. 
But see, the members of the All India Services have to serve both the union and the state government. And uh, their salary and other benefits are paid by who? The government to which they serve. If they are serving the union government, it will come from the, 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 the union executive. And if serving the state government, it will come from the state executive. But see, the recruitment, training, service condition, all these are maintained by union government. Now that is that has been a long-standing grouse in the post-independence period. It remained a very long-standing grouse of the state, state governments in the post-independence period that why state has to pay these officers are that of the union government with a loyalty to the union government. And see, the volunteer services are maintained in order to maintain the uniformity in administration and maintain the excellence in administration throughout the country. Another aspect we need to highlight is that why these volunteer services are maintained? So that across the country, whether the northeastern states or let's say west or the northern state or the south or central state in the Indian states everywhere the level of administration the type of the, 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 the character of administration the excellence in administration should be the same and also to establish better coordination across the state with center and the state that is the primary reason that everywhere we should have a standard of administration that should be the same. The excellence in administration that should be same. And also the coordination should be better between the union and state and the one state with other state. Because see, they already services belonging to the same between the member of the same service, they can actually easily interact. But see, in the era of coalition. The All India character of the All India Services seems to have been on the mount. So the competition between the Union and State has resulted into the victimization of the all-India service. Why is so? Because see, in the post, uh, in the coalition era, the members of the all-India service seems to be more loyal to the government they are serving, or seems to have been more subservient towards the government they are serving. So if they are in the state government, they seem to be subservient to the state government, if they are in the union government, they seem to be subservient to the union government. This has been largely because of what? <coughs> they didn't have much of the autonomy. They are easily vulnerable to, let's say, victimization and at the same time, the state government or for that matter central government can misuse its power to transfer, posting, promotion. So this in fact has undermined the all India character and here you can give some examples.
administrative action. So those set of beliefs and values shared by people in general related to the administrative practices and action is what is referred to as administrative culture. That is what is administrative culture. That means if you take into account government of India or a particular ministry or department, people in that they have certain type of values, certain type of belief with regard to what is administration. What type of action is desired and what type of action is not desired. How to act and how not to act. Or how to take up administrative responsibilities. <coughs> Whether to be proactive, inactive or reactive. All this explains what? The administrative culture. Repeat. Simply we can say. The set of beliefs and values that is shared by people in general within the administration or within an organization towards administration, towards administrative practices and action is what is being referred to as administrative culture. So that means it is a subjective orientation of individuals within the administration. So thereby it moreover defines their attitudes. So moreover defines the attitude, predilection, predisposition of individuals within the administration. Is it important to understand? Is it important to understand? Why? Because, see, in general, as already we have referred, you know, while discussing political culture, see, these beliefs and values basically referring to I being an individual, what I understand, what I believe, and what I prefer. Let's say in my mind, my belief is Sarkari Nokri Aram. Let's say, because many people have this, Yekini, is Sarkari Nokri Aram. Because if I believe it is Simply, it is a job which gives me security. It is a job which in fact gives me, let's say, the goods of life. It is a job that can also help me to satisfy all my personalized and private needs. And also, it is a belief, not only I, I understand, I also desire these things. See, this is what my belief and faith and my values are. Will I be able to perform better to maximize public interest? No. Why is so? Because the belief 
values and faith determines human attitude and human attitude is one of the major determinant of human action or behavior. So administrative culture, coming back, when we refer administrative culture, administrative culture could be significant for multiple reasons. The study of administrative culture, understanding of administrative culture could be significant for multiple reasons. What could be this? One, it can help us understand what is the thought process of individuals in administration which factor influences this second whether that is leading towards positive goals whether it is leading towards positive action or it is leading towards negative action. If so, why? Next, based on this, the training, counseling and other educative programs and initiatives could be defined. Next. It can help in Developing control and accountability mechanisms. Next, it can help in identifying administrative capabilities. thereby policy choices. Next, it can help us explain policy failures and policy successes.
thereby making it more responsive. Responsible. Transparent. And accountable. Next. It can help to bridge the gap between administration and citizen. Thereby increasing people participation. So these are some of the essentials that can be addressed through administrative culture. Okay. So the big brief interrupted note I gave on this administrative culture. So the the entire explanation of these points and we'll take up uh, the entire topic administrative culture with other topics and issues in Indian administration in tomorrow's class. Okay. Any question anyone would like to ask? नहीं तो उस सर शायद उसको बोले हैं कि इंजीनियरिंग के बाद खत्म होगा केस तो अभी अभी तो हो जाएगा